are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Welcome to our YouTube Live here on October 27th, 2022. It's always a little bit awkward because uh, when you're on a trip, and we've been out of town now for two weeks, you lose track of the days as normal. So I just have to refocus and say, yes, it's October 27th. It's Thursday. It doesn't feel like a normal Thursday for me with our normal schedule. But I'm doing this YouTube Live, again, directly live from Israel, where, again, my wife and I have been for the last two weeks. Uh, We are leaving Israel in just a few hours. Uh, We're going to drive to the airport at about 3 o'clock in the morning, our time. Uh, That is about five hours from right now. And then we'll be headed off to Germany, where I've got a couple exciting stops to make, especially a stop in Munich. And then we're going to be headed on home from there. But I just want to say hello to everybody, or if I could say shalom from Israel, And I did just want to start off by talking a little bit about uh, what a wonderful thing it is to make a visit to Israel or to any Bible land that you can visit. What I mean by Bible land is uh, a lot of times people immediately think of the lands of the Bible uh, being Israel. But listen, there's also a lot of biblical sites to explore in Jordan, in Turkey, in Greece, Uh, even in Rome, and some including in Egypt. That pretty much covers the span of it. But any opportunity you have to visit biblical sites, uh, places, uh, things where important things in the Bible happened, I think it's worth your while to do it. I appreciate it's kind of expensive for people to do it. Uh, These trips are not cheap. And these tours are not really, at least in my experience, a vacation because you hit it pretty hard. You're keeping a tight schedule of being fair, up fairly early in the morning and um, uh, going on through the day and, and, and really uh, pressing so that you can get in as much as possible. I think that's the way you should do a tour like this. But let me tell you, it's been two weeks now and uh, I'm pretty tired. I'm ready to uh, uh, get on to the next thing, make our visit to Germany on the way home, and then uh, follow home after that. I, I do just want to say as well that it is a wonderful and a powerful thing to be in Israel, to walk around the land, to be in Jerusalem, and to generally have a sense that God is doing things and moving in this particular time in this particular place. Uh, I do believe that God has a plan for the Jewish people, uh, that they still have a place in his unfolding plan of the ages. But whenever I say that, I always like to keep in mind and to also emphasize that God has a great love for and plan for uh, the Arabic people and other peoples of the Middle East as well. Uh, We should never think that God's special um, place for the Jewish people in his plan uh, somehow means that there's an exclusion to his heart, his will, for other nations and other peoples, 
especially as we might think the Arabic or the Persian peoples of the Middle East. This is one reason why at Enduring Word, we've put a lot of emphasis into the Arabic translation of our Bible commentary. Uh, Because the Bible commentary that I put out and that some people find helpful around the world, uh, we think it's very important to have that translated into widely used languages around the world. And certainly Arabic is a widely used language around the world, in particular here in the Middle East. And I know that God has a great love for Arabic believers in Jesus Christ and for the Arabic people in general. And so I don't think that we should ever allow our appreciation and our affection for the Jewish people and our appreciation for what God is doing here to eclipse or even in some sense eliminate the truth that God has a great love as well for all the nations, including the Arabic and Persian peoples of the Middle East. So again, as I said, we have a very active translation work of the Bible commentary that I've produced into Arabic, and you can find that at arabic.enduringword.com. I'm also happy to say that uh, within the recent months, we've launched our dedicated Farsi website, and that can be found at farsi.enduringword.com. We're grateful for how God is moving in the Middle East. We see that among the Jewish people. We see it among the Arabic people. We see that among Persians and Farsi-speaking people. And we pray that there will continue to be a great harvest of people who turn their attention to Jesus as the Messiah. So it is a wonderful thing to be here, to see the sights, uh, to be um, among the people, to remember the great things that God has done, uh, to be with a tour group where most of the people, this is their first trip to Israel, and it's a wonderful thing to see the sights all brand new through their eyes. Something that fills us with a lot of gratitude and a lot of appreciation And uh, I'm glad that modern technology allows us to uh, set up my phone right here in a hotel room uh, in Jerusalem and uh, with a little stand that my phone is on, a little microphone that I have there. Here I am and I can speak to my YouTube audience, our YouTube audience, even though I'm far away from my home in California. So anyway, with that, I'm going to turn my attention to the questions that have come in from Devin, our moderator on the live chat. And the first question comes from Adonis. Adonis asks the question, why out of all animals were frogs chosen to represent unclean spirits in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13? Let me read that verse to you, Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. It says, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet? Adonis, that's a great question because I don't think there's any clear answer to that question from the text itself other than just to give the association that according to Jewish dietary laws, what we commonly call the kosher laws, uh, the kosher dietary laws said that frogs were unclean animals, animals that couldn't be eaten. Therefore, uh, these would be simply unclean animals. And uh, I think that's the only emphasis that there would be in the identification of these animals as frogs. 
I, I think that to uh, Jewish readers of the first century, uh, they would regard these frogs and maybe among Gentile readers as well as being somewhat loathsome, uh, unappealing things, uh, yet not in a sense mighty or intimidating, more annoying and loathsome. So that's really the best association I could get with it. The text itself <clears throat> doesn't really seem to emphasize, if I could use a term, the frogginess of the frogs. Uh, it just simply puts them forth as unclean animals used uh, to represent these demonic spirits that will affect, as it says there, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet there in the book of Revelation chapter 16. So I don't think there's a very strong or compelling answer other than just to note that these are unclean animals. Thanks for that question, Adonis. I'll go on to the next question from Lucho, who asks, can Israelites be saved without believing in Jesus as Messiah, or can they be saved by keeping the law that was given to them? Lucho, that is a wonderful question. And I'm happy just to say that the Bible simply tells us that uh, for an individual to come in right relationship with God, it can't happen by them earning a place by uh, their own good conduct in life. And the simple reason for this is that nobody's conduct is good enough. As the Bible says, to have failed in one point of God's law is to have failed in all. Now, I need to be a little bit careful here. The Bible isn't saying that there's not gradations of moral evil, nor that there's some sins that are worse than others. Surely there are. What the Bible's indicating to us in this is that any sin makes someone fall short of God's perfect holiness and God's perfections. And taking that seriously, we just simply have to say that um, nobody can be good enough to earn their place before God. Instead, we need a righteousness that's given to us by our relationship of love and trust in God's Savior, in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Therefore, no one, whether they be uh, whatever their religious background, if you want to say their religious background is Jewish, is Muslim, is Buddhist, none of them by performing can be good enough to be in right relationship with God. Now, I do want to make a caveat to that. There is the question that people ask, uh, what if someone has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? What if they've never heard and, and how will God hold them accountable for rejecting a savior that they've never heard of, that they've never been informed of? Well, I do believe that every human being has been spoken to by God as, or excuse me, as Romans chapter 1 relates, in either revelation by creation and revelation uh, through our conscience. And God will judge each individual on that basis, um, not necessarily on the basis of having accepted or rejected Jesus if they've never even heard the gospel. But it comes down to this, that they can't earn salvation by their law performance, by their 
keeping of the commandments because no one can keep the commandments good enough. So, for someone to reject Jesus as Messiah, for them to insist on saving themselves, is in a sense to be pushing away God's only provision. No, Lucho, there's not two paths of salvation. Uh, As Jesus said, Jesus said these words, I'm quoting him, so I'm not speaking them myself, but I'm speaking them as being the words of Jesus. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So really, Jesus himself said that he was the only way. And we must allow Jesus to speak for himself. And if Jesus said he was the exclusive way, not through law keeping or any other such way, then we would just have to simply accept that that's what Jesus is. So um, thank you, Lucho, for that. The law of Moses was meant to show people their need for a savior. And then through the various laws and ceremonies to point towards the Messiah that God promised he would provide and ultimately did provide in Jesus Christ. So thank you for that question, Lucho. To to put it simply, the answer is no. Um, Someone who rejects Jesus as the Messiah can't be in right relationship with God. And uh, they can't be saved by law keeping uh, because nobody's good enough to earn their right relationship with God through law keeping. Let me go to the next question from Anil, who asks, please tell me about the Ark of the Covenant. Where is it right now? Was it there and available in Jesus's time? Anil, this is a great question. Uh, Just this morning, uh, I was up together with our tour group on top of the Temple Mount. That's the area of land in the old city of Jerusalem where the Jewish temple once stood uh, before it was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And, of course, we were talking about the temple. We were talking about where it was situated on the Temple Mount. We were talking about that great institution of what is called Second Temple Judaism, the first temple being the temple under Solomon, which was destroyed by the Babylonians, The second temple is the temple established by Zerubbabel and Ezra uh, following the Babylonian captivity, but then greatly expanded and improved by Herod the Great, uh, again, leading up to the times of Jesus. But anyway, Anil, um, what we noted when we were up on the Temple Mount was that in the Holy of Holies during that second temple period, that time when the temple stood when Jesus was here. There was nothing in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared at the Babylonian captivity. Now, there are theories as to what happened to it. Some people say that it was just simply destroyed. Okay, that's one idea, as it plundered treasure from the uh, Babylonians. Uh, Some people think that it was preserved and there are legends, there's ideas that it is deposited in some kind of secret cavern uh, in the Temple Mount underneath where the temple once stood. There is a sect of Ethiopian Christians who are convinced that they have the Ark of the Covenant 
and it is on a island in the middle of a great river in Ethiopia, or perhaps it's a lake. I may be confused on that, but it's on an island, and uh, there the Ark of the Covenant is housed. Um, while I appreciate their devotion to this tradition, I, I don't think that there's a lot going for the validity of that. There are some people who insist that the Ark of the Covenant was actually taken up to heaven by God because there is a mention of an Ark of the Covenant in heaven in the book of Revelation. But I would regard that more as the model in heaven upon which the earthly Ark of the Covenant was built and patterned after. So to all that to say this, Anil, nobody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. Uh, for all we know, it's been destroyed. If it were to be rediscovered, if it were to be found, it would be one of the most remarkable archaeological uh, discoveries of all time, and it would probably be a great impetus for the Jewish people to build a temple again. Uh, surely you would think if they found the Ark of the Covenant it would spur them to build a building that would be worthy to receive it. I'm not saying that that's the only circumstances under which the Jewish people might rebuild a temple, but certainly that would be one explanation for why they might do it. But nobody knows, uh, and it was not present in the days of Jesus. Uh, in the second temple, again, originally built by Zerubbabel and Ezra following the second temple, uh, following the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians and the return from the Babylonian exile. Following that, uh, there's just no record of what happened to the Ark of the Covenant or where it was following that. Hope that's helpful for you there, Anil. Let me go on to the next question from Jennifer, who asks, when did the glory of God leave the temple for the last time? Jennifer, that's a very good question. In the book of Ezekiel, it speaks very vividly how before the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, Ezekiel had a very compelling vision of the glory of God, which is sometimes called the Shekinah, that describes a cloud of glory, a presence of God's glory. The Shekinah of God leaving the temple, going eastward over the Mount of Olives, lingering a while at the Mount of Olives, and then disappearing. It's a very vivid description there in the book of Ezekiel. To my knowledge, there is no specific mention of the Shekinah glory of God, this cloud of glory, after that, being present at the temple, with one exception that I'll speak about in a moment. Uh, but to my knowledge, there is no mention of uh, the fire falling from heaven, there is no mention of the Shekinah glory. Now, uh, this may be somewhat due to ignorance on my part. 
even though there was a miracle at the rededication of the temple in the intertestamental time celebrated by the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah, the festival of lights, when God miraculously provided oil for uh, the proper time of cleansing and purification for the temple following its desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes, I'm not aware, and perhaps this is due to my ignorance, but I'm not aware of any mention of a reappearance or an establishment of the cloud of glory of the Shekinah glory of God. Again, if it's present there, I'm not aware of it. So all that to say this, there is a remarkable statement in the book of Haggai where he says that the glory of the second temple will surpass the glory of Solomon's temple. And when that was written, the second temple under the days of Zerubbabel and Ezra was a very humble building, especially compared to Solomon's temple. Yet nevertheless, God promised that the glory of the latter temple would be greater. And one reason we can say this was fulfilled was that even though we don't have mention, at least to my knowledge, of the Shekinah glory of God present at Zerubbabel's temple or Ezra's temple in the day, what we do have is the glory of God embodied in a person, Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, God the Son, present there at the temple. And that's something really uh, remarkable to consider, that as glorious as Solomon's temple was, and it was a glorious building, Jesus, in his uh, physical form, in his incarnated body, never visited Solomon's temple, but he did visit the second temple. So surely that was a sense in which the presence and the glory of the Lord was present at the second temple, but not in the form, again, as far as I know, of the Shekinah glory of God. I hope that's helpful for you there, Jennifer. Um, Let me go on to the next question from Greg, who asks this. Is Jesus considered to be eternally submissive to the Father, or was it while he was just on earth? Um, Greg, I don't think in terms of the eternal submission of the Son, in the sense, or in any sense, that would imply inferiority. I think that there was a sense in which Jesus was submissive to the Father during his earthly work that isn't necessarily true of the relationship of the Father and Son throughout all eternity. I don't see a need for an eternal submission of the Son, and so I would be very cautious to tread upon that ground. And so again, I just don't see a need for it. Now, I do find that there is something just in those inherent titles. Um, The relationship between father and son um, 
in general would imply uh, some sense of authority and submission. But again, especially as a relationship between father and son comes into adulthood, it's a different kind of thing. So I would put more of a stress on what is sometimes called the economic, and it doesn't mean in a financial sense, it just means for a certain duty or a certain purpose, submission of the son, that taking place during uh, the earthly ministry that he had. And now the son enthroned in glory um, lives in that eternal cooperation with God the Father. But, but make no doubt about it, the son was utterly submitted to his father. I think of the words that Jesus said. He said, uh, I do nothing except what the father wants me to do. Uh, Jesus lived his life very consciously on this earth in full submission to his father. Yet, um, by his nature, who he was in his divine nature, he was no less God than God the Father was. I think it's a very important lesson there showing us that submission doesn't make a person any less. And in the many spheres that God calls us to submit in our faithful, our living out of our Christian lives, um, submission in the home, uh, whether it's between uh, in the, the marriage relationship, whether it's in the parent-child relationship, uh, submission in the community uh, between citizens and government, uh, submission in the workplace between um, employers and employees, uh, submission in the church uh, between the appointed leaders of the church and the congregants of the church. Um, none of those in any way teach or even imply any level of superiority or inferiority. But just simply to answer your question, Greg, uh, I, I don't see a need for an eternal submission. And I, I would have to see a need and a um, specific outworking of that idea in Scripture. Um, so basic answer is no, Greg. Uh, I don't think that the Son in his nature is eternally submissive to the Father. Uh, next question comes from uh, Kofuroala. Please forgive me if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Ask this question. Is it possible for non-Americans to join your Israel trip? If so, what does one need to do? Well, uh, Kofuroala, of course it is. And uh, in years past, we've been delighted to have people from several different nations join our Israel tour. Uh, what is kind of remarkable about coming to Israel is you see a wonderful fulfillment of the promise that God made, that he would draw all nations to Israel. And it's amazing to go around to the different sites and hear languages and to see groups from all different nations. Uh, just on this particular trip, we saw and noticed groups from Colombia, from Mexico, from Korea, from India, uh, from Germany, from Austria, from Holland, from Norway, from England. And I mean, I could just go on from Russia. We saw several groups. Again, it's just remarkable to see this gathering place of um, believers and seekers all over the world. So yes, the Israel trip is open, but I, I need to make a little caveat here. 
the particular trip that I'm on now uh, was not organized by my ministry, uh, Enduring Word, but it was rather organized by the church I attend and the church where I help out as a teaching pastor. Uh, Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara is the name of the church. Here's the name tags that we had along for this trip. And um, it just identifies it as being a tour with Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara. Uh, Now, it would be open to whoever signed up for it, but it's hard to know how people from more distant places would even know about the tour. Uh, So let me say this. We do, as a ministry, Enduring Word, have tours that we've had in the past and plan on doing in the future. Next year, in the year 2023, we're going to be doing a cruise through the Mediterranean that will make stops and have excursions at many sites uh, in biblical lands. Uh, So we'll have stops in, and this is just off the top of my head, Places relevant to the Bible, such as Athens, uh, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Galilee, Alexandria, and more that I'll probably think of later. Uh, That cruise for next year at this time is full, and we have people on a waiting list. uh, So maybe there's a chance somebody from another country could get on there. You can find information about that on our Enduring Word website. If you can't find the link anywhere, I believe you can find it under the About section on the menu. And we hope in coming years to do Israel tours, uh, tours of other Bible lands, whether it be in Jordan, whether it be in Turkey, in Greece, uh, and maybe even we'll do some church history tours in the future, uh, because that's another topic that's of great interest to us. So, If you keep an eye on the Enduring Word website, subscribe to our monthly newsletters and such, you'll receive news of those things. So thank you for that question. Uh, Next one comes from Alfredo, who asked this question. Hello, Pastor. I'm currently watching your church history series, and I'm wondering about your thoughts on landmarkism. From Google, landmarkism is a type of Baptist ecclesiology developed in the American South in the mid-19th century. It's committed to a strong version of their perpetuity theory of Baptist origins, attributing an unbroken continuity and unique legitimacy to the Baptist movement since the apostolic period. Well, um, Fredo, when it comes down to landmarkism and this idea that Uh, there's been an unbroken chain of Baptists going all the way back to John the baptizer. Um, I I don't know how helpful or how true that particular thing. Now, I I would subscribe to a variant of that. Um, I do believe that God has, throughout church history, always had his faithful people since the day of Pentecost. And there have certainly been times when the church has been um, more corrupt. Uh, There's certainly been time when the number of genuine believers, those 
who truly are born again and have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, when that number of people has been fewer and fewer proportionally. But God has always had his remnant among his people, those who have a true faith in Jesus. And that remnant uh, is not exclusively defined by their practice of baptism. So maybe that's an area where I would um, disagree with uh, landmarkism, the idea that there's been a faithful train of Baptists going back to the very beginning, or at least to the time of John the baptizer. So I do believe that God has had, of course, a faithful remnant. I do believe that Jesus was um, speaking truly and that the promise was actually fulfilled that he spoke of, that the gates of hell would not and could not prevail against the church, uh, and that uh, there's never been a time when the church has been wiped out, so to speak in the history of the church. So God has always had his faithful remnant, even in times when there's been a lot of corruption in the church. And we also see that often, not always, often that remnant has existed outside of the institutional church. Now, I believe that God has always had his remnant within the institutional church as well. Um, But Outside the institutional church, there's always been a remnant. And uh, one history that highlights many of these movements that I think is interesting reading, uh, it'll be the subject of one of the lectures of our church history series, is an old book by a man named, um, I believe his name is Broadbent, uh, if I'm remembering the um, name correctly. Anyway, the title of the book is The Pilgrim Church. I wouldn't believe in landmarkism just as Baptists often explain it, uh, but in a general principle, I think that there's really something to it, that um, there's always been a faithful remnant, and sometimes that remnant, maybe even often, has been outside the institutional church. Let me go on to the next question from Char, who asks, Does the Jewish temple have to be rebuilt for the end to take place? Okay, Char, um, I believe so. You know, look, whenever we're talking about biblical prophecy or what we sometimes call eschatology, I always like to acknowledge that there are believers who have different opinions, uh, believers who have different thoughts on this, um, But, you know, you're asking the question to me, so I'm going to give you my perspective. And my perspective doesn't belong to me alone, uh, but it certainly is the perspective that I hold. I believe that there's certain aspects of what God says will happen in the very last days that require there to be a Jewish temple. Most pointedly, for there to be any kind of literal fulfillment of what God spoke about with the abomination of desolation. This abomination of desolation, which is actually simply an idolatrous image set up in the holy place. Uh, I don't believe at all that it was fulfilled when the Jewish temple was destroyed in AD 70. I don't think it's fulfilled today by modern totalitarian governments. Uh, I believe that there will be a rebuilt temple and that uh, a world leader that is sometimes popularly called the Antichrist, I don't know if that's the best title for him, but that's the one that seems to stick in the minds of most people, uh, 
that a world leader will command that an image that must be worshipped will be set up in that temple. And so I do believe that there will be a uh, rebuilt temple. Now, as Christians, we have mixed feelings regarding a rebuilt temple. And let me explain to you why. Uh, On one hand, when we see that there is a small but dedicated group of Jews today who are very serious about rebuilding the temple, when we see that, when we see things such as excitement about uh, the existence of red heifers, uh, that is, certain types of cattle that have been um, identified and moved to Israel uh, with the idea of uh, having a role in the future administration of priestly service and temple services. When we see those things, on the one hand, there's a sense of excitement in the sense of seeing what we believe to be fulfillments of biblical prophecy. Again, I want to stress that not every Christian sees it this way, but I'm certainly among those who does see it as a you know, a step towards fulfillment. But on the other hand, as believers, we do not regard with enthusiasm any kind of setting up of a sacrificial system uh, with any kind of hope to atone for sin. Jesus Christ is the end of the sacrificial system when it comes to the atonement of sin. And so, We don't embrace what a Jewish temple would stand for, which would actually be an alternative way, or or it wouldn't actually be, let's say, a desired alternative way to be in right relationship with God that would would reject the finished work of Jesus Christ. No, we're, we're not enthusiastic about that. But we would simply be enthusiastic about things uh, that the Bible says will happen, and we would see indications that they would be happening. So that's kind of a long answer to your question there, Char, but I I hope you got the answer there. Let me move to the next question from Bob. By the way, when I do a Q&A from my phone like this, occasionally I'll notice some of the comments that pop up, and I did see a comment from my friend, Pastor Bill Welsh, uh, Bill's in the land too, together with his pastor Bill. <laughs> I'm glad you could join us if you're still on for the program. You know very well that it's 10:40 here in Israel, and you're probably tired after a day of touring with your particular tour group. Uh, God bless you, Pastor Bill, and thank you for that Israel tour that I was able to do with you a few years back. Man, that was a great trip. Okay, beyond that, let me go to the next question from Bob, who asks this. Did sacrifices for sin stop when the second temple was destroyed? And what was done for remission of sins afterwards in Israel? Bob, I think that's a very interesting question. And let me answer it a few different ways. Um, Yes, there was no more temple sacrifice performed by the Jewish people after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So that ended the carrying out of the sacrificial system among the Jewish people. Since then, they have looked for their own 
good deeds and repentance to be a substitute for the sacrificial system. That's essentially it. And so instead of looking for sacrifices to take away sin, they look for their own obedience to cancel out prior sin and perhaps repentance or sorrow over their sin to be accepted by God as something greater than a sacrifice. Um, I understand why they would say something like that. There are verses where God says, I've desired mercy or obedience and not sacrifice. Uh, But I don't think that those particular verses speak to the real point of it is that the Bible says that there is no remission or removal of sin without the shedding of blood. It's true that God would rather have us obey than try to please him with any kind of sacrifice. That's absolutely true, and it's stated so in the Bible. But I don't think our obedience can remove the guilt of our past sin before God. So I don't believe there is any adequate satisfaction for sin apart from the perfect sacrifice made by Jesus Christ. Now, I will add one other thing and give it sort of a different light on your question here, Bob. I could say to you that the sacrificial system ended in AD 70, and that would be a a, a true, but I would also say to you that there's another sense, a very real sense, in which the sacrificial system ended when Jesus finished his work on the cross and when he rose from the dead. Because... God did not regard any sacrifice for sin made in the temple after that period. It was fulfilled. Instead of looking to the imperfect shadow of the sacrifices that were being offered at the temple, God invited his people now to look at the finished perfect sacrifice that Jesus Christ the Messiah offered. As is detailed in many places in the New Testament, especially throughout the book of Hebrews. So you could say that the real end of the sacrificial system was not when the temple was destroyed, but some 40 years before that, when Jesus finished his sacrificial work once and for all, he being perfect, being able to offer a perfect sacrifice for the satisfaction of sins. So Bob, I hope that question or that answer is helpful uh, in regard to your question. Next one comes from Horatio, who asks, Why did Daniel do a partial fast and not a full fast in Daniel chapter 10? Okay, uh, in Daniel chapter 10, it speaks of Daniel refraining from certain foods. Here's how I would put it. As a matter of fact, how my father-in-law, Niels Bergstrom, would put it. He has a great book that you can get on Amazon titled Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. You can find that book on Amazon, and I'm sure he talks about that in this book. But um, what Daniel did in Daniel chapter 10 by denying himself certain foods, I wouldn't really regard that as a fast. Fasting is when you don't eat not when you eat from a limited menu. Now, 
eating from a limited menu, such as Daniel did in Daniel chapter 10, uh, denying yourself certain foods, that can be a helpful and a good practice of self-denial. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. It may be a good and godly thing to do and led of the Lord in a particular situation. However, it's not the same as fasting. Fasting is to not eat. It's to deny yourself caloric intake. You're not intaking any calories. That's what fasting really is. It's to stop eating for a period of time, a period of time to give yourself focus on the Lord, uh, a special way to practice self-discipline, a way to give special attention to the things of God, uh, a way to demonstrate to yourself and to God your earnestness about a particular need. These are all very practical and biblical ideas and, and impulses for fasting. So I would just make a separation between practiced self-denial, such as eating from a limited man. I won't eat any sweets. I won't eat any meat. I won't do this or that, whatever it might be. Again, that's a fine form of self-denial, but it's not fasting. Fasting is not eating. Um, denying yourself the intake of calories. I hope that's helpful for you there, Horatio. And as for why Daniel did that kind of uh, self-denial, um, he did it as a way to um, deny self and to draw close to the Lord. Um, listen, there is an aspect of our life with God that requires some measure of self-denial. And Daniel was simply entering into that um, in Daniel chapter 10. Right, next question comes from Sheila, who asks, Is it true that we are alive with God before we are born naturally and then return to God when we die in the Lord? Sheila, that's a very interesting question that you ask. Basically, you're asking about the pre-existence of souls. Uh, is it true that souls exist and live unto God before they are, so to speak, conceived in the womb and born on earth. And Sheila, I would just simply say that I believe that that is an idea that has no real biblical support. So instead of believing in the pre-existence of souls, I would simply say that human beings whether you're talking about their body, their soul, or their spirit, are created by God at conception in the mother's womb. I don't know of any other adequate place to mark that. Um, and certainly, I don't have any evidence biblically for the idea of the pre-existence of souls. Uh, so because we don't find that idea in the Bible, I don't think it's best for us to really believe in it and certainly not to emphasize it in any way. We, as human beings made in the image of God, we are eternal or immortal in one direction. We will live forever, but God is immortal or eternal in both directions. 
both in relevant to the future, of course, God never dying, of course, that goes without saying, but also God having no beginning as well. Human beings, we have a definite beginning, but God has put eternity not only in our hearts, but in our very nature. So, Sheila, I don't find any biblical precedent for the idea of the pre-existence of souls. Uh, next question comes from Sina. Sina asks a question, what does it mean when the Bible refers to the kingdom of God? Oh, well, Sina, good question. And I chuckle just a little bit at your question because it's a big question. It's a broad question. Well, I'll summarize it with a definition that I heard many years ago and is just sort of stuck in my mind as being a good definition of the kingdom of God. You could define the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of God is anywhere where the reign of Jesus is recognized and the benefits of his reign are enjoyed. As Christians, we are called to recognize Jesus as our king. And in fact, Jesus is king. He's king over the whole earth. And uh, eventually, his kingship, his reign over all the earth, will be exercised in a literal earth and recognized all over the earth. Now, I don't believe that it's our job to make that reign happen, but it's our job to live in that reign in our personal lives right now. But one day, Jesus Christ will reign over all the earth in a very literal, real way. But right now, he reigns among and in his people. The kingdom of God is not fully realized in the glorious reign of Jesus over all the earth in all its fullness, in its ultimate sense. But there's certainly a sense in which Jesus reigns in his kingdom right now. Churches, communities of Christians should be um, kingdom communities. We should be, just as you might have a group of well, my, my, um, my wife is Swedish, and in Southern California, uh, we used to interact occasionally with a chapter of Swedish women, Svea was the name of the organization, uh, that kind of had their own community there in Southern California. And this organization had chapters many different places in the world. And kind of the idea was, uh, these Swedish women and their families could gather together and enjoy some Swedish culture and language and customs away from their home in Sweden uh, because they all lived together in a different place. There's a sense, to use that analogy, in which we are citizens of another kingdom and we're here in a faraway place, but we should collectively enjoy the customs, the values the traditions, so to speak, the commandments of our kingdom, uh, even though our kingdom is in heaven, uh, God has us here on earth to live out the values and the ethics of his kingdom. So in regard to that, the kingdom of God is any place where the, uh, 
the reign of Jesus as king is recognized, it's received, and the benefits of that reign are enjoyed. That's a great definition, I think, of what the kingdom of God is, Asina. And that is a very real sense in which the kingdom of God may be among us now in one measure, and ultimately he'll reign over the, all the earth when his kingdom is fulfilled in our midst. Continue on our next question from Anahui asks this. In Luke chapter 1, verse 25, Elizabeth is to said to pray before God for five months for God to take away her reproach among men. Why did men condemn her? Did they judge women who couldn't have children? And the reference here is to Luke chapter 1, verse 25. Well, uh, Anahui, let me just answer this question for you and say, um, yes, um, people, especially in biblical times, and this is still true in some cases today, but people did judge women who couldn't have children. The idea was simply this, the thinking among some, now this isn't something that the Bible says, uh, this was a tradition among people, but in Bible times, Culturally, um, there were many people who believed that if a woman couldn't have children, it was because she was specially cursed by God. And so they did look down upon them. They held that woman to be in some measure of disgrace. Uh, they were disgraced because they couldn't have children and uh, God was cursing them because they couldn't have children. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, Elizabeth is rejoicing that God has taken away this disgrace. This was not disgrace that God put upon her, but that the culture put upon her. And we all know that uh, the values of a culture may not reflect the values of God's kingdom at all. So, that's a simple answer to that. This isn't a curse or a disgrace that God put upon her, but the culture put upon her. Okay, let me go on now to the next question from S and L. It says this, uh, we have our children in the Catholic school system. Would it be right to allow my children to carry through with the class on the sacraments, such as the first communion and reconciliation? S and L, um, I would say this, uh, I would only allow that. You know, th this is one of those questions that I'm going to answer. Just look, you're asking me, I'm answering you. I, I wonder if upon further reflection, I might give you another answer. Um, but I would just simply say this, that if you were to allow, if, if that Catholic school system was the best option for your children educationally, and I don't know whether, what other options are available to you, so I can't say whether that's true or not, but if that was the best option available to you and uh, there was no way for them to opt out of those classes, I would simply say this, that if they were to take, then you should teach them the biblical truth of what communion is and what it isn't, and the biblical truth about what the confession of sin is and what it isn't. Um, with all respect, 
I don't agree uh, with the Roman Catholic theology behind their sacramental system in general and in the details of their sacraments, of the carrying out of uh, the Lord's Supper or what they would call Holy Communion or reconciliation, which they used to call confession of sin. So if it were me in that situation, and again, I felt that that was the best choice for my children, I couldn't have them opt out of those classes, then I would make it a point to teach them, uh, I think, what the truth would be at home. Listen, we, we can't stop always whatever influences may come to our children from other sources. But when we're aware of those influences, we can very deliberately teach them the truth. Uh, and so we can equip them to know what is true and what, again, from my perspective, my understanding of the Bible, with all respect to uh, Roman Catholic friends, um, I would just disagree with the theology of the sacramental system in general and the specific details of what is called in the Roman Catholic Church Holy Communion and reconciliation. So from my biblical perspective, I would teach them the truth regarding those things. I hope that's helpful for you there, SNL. And then our last question of the day, let me say, if you're disappointed to hear me say last question of the day, uh, then I just simply want to say um, thank you for writing the question. I'm sorry if we couldn't get to all your questions, um, but I would ask that you have a little bit of mercy on me. I'm tired, and now it's uh, just uh, uh, three hours until I have to wake up again and get on my way to the airport. So thank you for your mercy on me today for having uh, a situation where I'm going to leave some of the questions, probably no doubt a few good questions that you've asked in the chat that I haven't left answered. Uh, again, just to make clear to our audience, I'm speaking to you live from Israel. I'm in a hotel room uh, in Jerusalem. Not all that far, about a half a mile from the old city. Uh, I'm at the very end of an Israel tour, been gone from home for a couple of weeks, and it's been a great trip, but um, we're anxious to be headed on our way home, where we're going to stop in Germany and celebrate with the church ICF in Munich uh, in the marvelous job that they've done translating my Bible commentary into German. There's going to be a presentation of that commentary in digital form and a launch of the website, and uh, we're going to go and celebrate that there with them in Germany on the way home, my wife, Inga Lil, and myself. Okay, all that leading up to what our last question is here for the day from Mason. Ask this question. If a drug addict or alcoholic truly surrenders their life to Christ, are they guaranteed to be set free? What would you say to a hardcore addict that wants to be free? Mason, um, first of all, I would look that person in the eye with great love and compassion. I would say, God bless you. I know people that when they surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, their addictions were taken away. And they, they never touched the, uh, the drugs or the alcohol that they were in um, bondage to. 
they never touch those things again. And then I know other people who have also been genuine believers in Jesus Christ, who have still struggled mightily with those habits, those enslaving, addictive habits. And for whatever reason, God did not grant them the immediate deliverance that he has granted to some other people. What I would simply say to a dear brother or sister in that situation is I would say, keep persisting and keep to the best of your ability, keeping a focus upon Jesus Christ. So don't give up in the battle against sin. Don't accommodate and say, well, this is just my sin and it's never gonna go away, so I'm just gonna yield to it. No, keep, keep fighting against it. And even if you were to fall a hundred times, then keep giving, getting up a hundred times. Continual um, surrender to the Lord. Don't surrender to the sin. And then I would just simply say this. Uh, take practical measures the very best that you can. And again, practical measures would be to uh, uh, keep yourself distant from addictive places and patterns and things that would lead you into uh, use or abuse of these drugs or the alcohol or whatever it is that dominates your life. Take wise, practical steps, but don't give up. Be, be honest about situ your situation and to the very best of your ability, keep your eyes on your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves you and who has promised that one day you and every one of us will be delivered not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the power of sin, but as well from the very presence of sin one day. In Christ, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. Right now, every one of us, not only those who struggle with addiction, but every one of us, is learning how to live life set free by the power of Jesus from the power of sin. And then one day, every believer will be set free from the very presence of sin. So I would want to encourage them and bless them in the name of the Lord. Hope that's helpful for you, Mason. God bless you and God bless every one of you who's able to join us today. Uh, next Thursday, God willing, and if I live, I'll be back in my home in California and I just want to say thank you for joining us today. Please continue to pray for the work of Enduring Word, especially our translation work. And I don't mind you asking for a special blessing upon the German translation work, the commentary being translated into German and the launch of our German website. I think this can be a special and a wonderful blessing to God. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And I hope you can join us again sometime. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.